He breaks every chain. And I, I'm happy that I am happy to make that sacrifice. I love that song. Um, I'm just really glad that you're here with us today. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians chapter five. If you don't have a Bible, there's probably one in the seat in front of you. Grab that. Now, we are diving back into a series that we had started before Easter on the book of Galatians, and I know that there are some of you in here today who have not been a part of any of those conversations before. Maybe Easter was your first day, or maybe this is your first day visiting, and if that's the case, welcome. We're really, really glad that you're here. My name is Eric. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, It's okay if you've missed the rest of the conversations in this, because today's message really stands on its own. It builds off of everything that's come, but but you're not going to question what Paul is saying when we dive into it, but it also really flows out of what we talked about in Easter. And I I agree with Ken, you know, I absolutely loved getting to worship Easter. I loved having the kids up here. We had something like 60 children up here. I just think, I think Jesus, that he protected all of those workers who were helping, trying to volunteer and loving them, that we didn't have any runners that got away or anything like that. Praise Jesus on that. So much fun. And I, I, I never cease to be amazed at how I can study the same moment in history year after year after year. And yet every single time I look at it, kind of God brings something new to the forefront and really impresses something. This year for me, the thing that stuck was this idea of the power of the hope that we have in Jesus. Right? It's not some hope that it's kind of built off of a desire or a possibility. I hope Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It is a living hope because it's based upon a living Messiah, a living Savior. And it's an active hope that transforms the way we live our lives in the here and now because we know that regardless of what obstacles we face, regardless of the, the brokenness in this world that we endure, the brokenness of this world will never get the last word. God does. And that's the hope that we have. But as I was thinking about it this week, I also realized that Jesus didn't just die to resurrect our hope. He also died in order to radically change our relationship with our Father God. From the moment that, that God began to interact with his people, with sin in the world, we saw this separation. Sin acts as a wedge that separates us from our holy God. And the law was like, for the longest time in Israel, it was the law that acted as this way that they were trying to climb their way back into God's good graces, or they were trying to maintain, he's a holy God, we want to be a holy people, so we're going to do our best. But the reality is the law was never intended to be this ladder that helped them climb into God's presence and to attain righteousness. If anything, the law was intended to show them just how incapable they were of doing it. So this was a a futile effort. And then, then came Easter. And one of the most powerful moments in the entire Easter story takes place in the very last few moments of Jesus' life. As he pulls on the nails one last time and he pushes up with his feet to get one last breath. And he fills his lungs. And with that last breath, he cries out, Tetelestai, which is a Greek word, that means it is finished. Tetelestai, it's the same word that a, a prison warden would scrawl across the, the, um, the list of charges 
when one of his convicts had served out his complete sentence and he was free to go, they would write, Tetelestai, it is finished. And that person would walk out of the prison into freedom. It's finished. It's the same word that a creditor would write across your bill of sale when you had finally put that last payment down. Those of you who bought houses around here like 30 years ago when you could afford them, you know what this feeling is like, right? When you put that last payment in. It is finished. We own this thing outright. Paid in full. That was the last words that Jesus spoke. And it was a declaration that the penalty of our sins, this debt, that was a blood debt that we owed to sin, was paid in full. And it was a reminder that we who had been imprisoned throughout our entire lives to sin and separated from God could be released because of what he had done on the cross. And then as the last wisps of his oxygen left his lungs and as his muscles relaxed and released and he died, something truly amazing happened. The ground began to shake. The sky grew dark. Don't, those of you who think that God is this impassive person who has no feelings, just look at that moment when his son died and the way that the father grieved. It cost him dearly to have Jesus on the cross. But then something amazing happened because while this is happening and as the earth is shaking, there's a curtain that hung in the temple that separated the holy of holy places from the rest of Israel. It was four inches thick. Hold up your hand for a moment. That's the thickness of that curtain. Just in case, you know, somebody got the idea they just want to peek behind it. This thing was heavy. And that curtain, in that moment when Jesus was breathing his last breath and his body was beginning to cool, that curtain was torn from top to bottom, declaring definitively, once and for all, that the things that separated us from God was no longer in effect. That we, who are sinful, broken individuals, can now come into the presence of our Father God. We don't need a priest. We don't even need a pastor as an intermediary. We can come just as we are because he desired relationship. It was the very thing he created us for. Now come. Yeah. That, was the, that is the power of the cross, and that is the reminder of what Easter is about. It's not just a resurrected hope, but a totally restored relationship with our Father God. Sin no longer separates us from him in the way that it did, because Jesus' blood covers us. Now, I have, to be honest with you, not everybody saw that play out the same way. Not everybody looked at the cross and said, now we can have a different relationship with God. If anything... For some of the Jews who worked in the temple, it was business as usual. When that happened, they looked at the, the torn curtain and they didn't see the symbolism of, oh, it was torn from top to bottom. It's kind of a thick curtain. You know, God may be telling us something. They looked at that curtain and went, well, that was an accident. Hey, somebody get over here with a needle and thread. Sew that bad boy up. We've got to get back to worshiping God through our rites and our, our, our religious kind of rules and all those kind of things. And they went back to worshiping God the same old way they always had. And even some of the, the Jews who believed in Jesus accepted that he was the Messiah they'd been waiting for a long, long time for. 
even some of them, had a hard time viewing the cross as anything other than just a, a, a new addition to the Judaistic kind of approach to God that they had been raised with, the same way that they've been approaching God their whole lives. What they decided to do is they said, hey, we'll take Jesus. He's a continuation of this, so we'll just kind of shove them together. Jesus and the law, they go hand in hand. If anything, the cross is the first rung on the ladder that you step on in order to get to righteousness. He got that first step there, but now it's up to us to do the rest of the way. And Paul who was raised as a Pharisee. In fact, he says at one point, man, I can out-Pharisee all you other Pharisees. I know what I'm doing. I know this mindset. And I got to tell you, you're missing the point. And Paul doesn't pull any punches. So as we dive into Galatians chapter 5, know that he is responding to some Jewish Christians who had gone up to these, these churches that, he, that Paul had planted in the region of Galatia. They were very new believers so their faith was relatively young and, and immature, and they were very easily swayed. And so when these Jewish Christians came in and went, listen, Jesus is the first rung on the ladder towards righteousness. The law is imperative. Getting circumcised, basically declaring publicly that you are a son or a daughter of God, that's imperative. If you want to accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you've got to become a Jew yourself. These are the kind of things that these Jewish Christians were saying. And the, the new believers in Galatia were going, oh, I guess that's true. I mean, that sounds about right. Okay. And when Paul catches wind of this, he is irate. He's extremely upset, and he writes a letter that is scathing. Compared to the other letters that he writes, it doesn't feel like it has the tone and texture of what you would find in Scripture, because he's mad. And he recognizes the gravity of what is going on here. And so he's not pulling any punches. So now, with that as our intro, let's dive into Galatians chapter 5. Verse 1, he starts, it is for freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free, right? Jesus died on the cross not to make you better rule followers. He died on the cross to set you free from the chains of the law, chains that you have had to try to bear and that could never take you to freedom. And if anything, those chains held you in bondage. And now that Jesus has died to remove those chains, do not try to put them back on, wrap them back around your wrist, try to tie them onto your ankles. It's for freedom that he sets you free. So, so stand firm then. And do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Don't try to put those chains back on. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare that every man who lets himself be circumcised, that he is obliged to obey the whole law. Now, just from a show of hands, who here has been circumcised? No, I'm just kidding. Just put him down. Put him down. Darlene, put your hand down. Holy moly. What we understand as circumcision today is radically different from what Paul is talking about here. I want to be really clear on this because today we tend to get circumcised out of health concerns. It is a choice that some parents make. But in Paul's day and for all of Israel's history, circumcision had a very, very different aspect to it. It was about as close to you know, it, was, it was basically a form of a covenant in the same way that my wedding ring is a tangible symbol 
of the covenantal promise that I made to my wife, that for better or for worse, I will walk with her the rest of my life, that we are one flesh, and that what God has united, no man has the authority to separate. That's what this symbolizes. And in the same way, circumcision was a tangible declaration one that you're hopefully not showing a whole lot of people, but still, one for yourself that you say, I am committed. I have covenanted with God and he has covenanted with me. He will be my God. I will follow him and I will submit to all of the rules and regulations that he has put in place so that I will be his representative. That's what circumcision symbolized. And so as these Jew, Jewish Christians are coming into the church in Galatia, they're like, hey, if you want Jesus, you've got to get circumcised which means you've got to basically embrace all of the law. And Paul's going, no, you don't understand. If you get circumcised, what you're actually saying is that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough, that it was insufficient to save you. And he goes on in verse 4. You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated, separated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. Now, grace is one of those words. I actually asked Ethan and Grayson this morning, what does grace mean to you? And Ethan goes, isn't that a church here in Costa Mesa? I go, yes, but, but beyond that, like, what is grace? Do you know? And, and they were like, ah. Long story short, for those of you who don't know, grace is getting something that we don't deserve, an undeserved gift. Let me give you an example. Imagine that you, you came up to me and said, hey, I'm going to take my sweetie to a really nice restaurant. I'm not really sure where to go, but I've heard Fleming's is nice. That even the wait staff, like I know Ken is there. Maybe he'll be our waiter. I want to go to Fleming's. I go, great. I've got a $100 gift certificate to Fleming's. I'd love to give it to you. And you're like, oh, no, 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 no. I know it's an appetizer, whatever. You know, <laughs> Maybe it's a side salad. I, I, I couldn't take that. No, 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 that's too much. No, no, I'm serious. Take it. It's a gift. No, I couldn't. Tell you what, why don't I give you $80 for it? No, just take it. Okay, how about 50? Can I give you 50 for it? No, this is a gift. Take it. How about 20? Can I give you 20? Now, if I kind of gave in and at any point I took some money for you for that gift card, it would in that moment cease to be a gift card. At that point, it'd become more like a, a discount card, wouldn't it? And it doesn't matter how much you're saving, it's no longer a gift when you've paid something for it. And in the same way, Jesus didn't die on that cross to give us a discounted way of being able to deal with our sins. He died on that cross to save us from our sins, to pay it in full. But of course, we're uncomfortable with that. We're terribly uncomfortable with the idea of getting something that we don't deserve because we don't like to feel indebted to anybody. We don't, it doesn't feel just. And so we have this tendency, this human tendency, to want to kind of, okay, Jesus, I'll take that, but I still need to do some. It's really nice when you can combine Jesus and the law together because then what that does is it turns him in just to that first rung on the ladder, but then we get to climb all the other rungs by our own effort through our own obedience to the law. And Paul is saying absolutely, categorically, no. The moment that you turn Jesus into any, Jesus' death on the cross into anything other than a gift freely given, you have fallen away from grace. And now you've turned into performance. 
It's that mindset that says, yeah, Jesus, thank you for what you've done for me, but look at all the things that I've done. And Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, it is by grace we have been saved, through faith, not by our own efforts, so that not a single one of us can say, look what I've accomplished, look what I've done. So you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. We hope that we will be declared righteous in God's sight, but it's something that we await. For in Christ Jesus, and he hammers this point just in case you missed it the first two times he said it, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. (laughs) Think about the gravity of what he just said there. The only thing that counts is our faith in Jesus Christ expressing itself. The Greek word there means to work itself out. So our faith in Jesus working itself out, tangibly kind of producing love for other people. It's powerful. But of course it's confusing. Like, wait a minute, Paul, what are you talking about? The only thing? I mean, that that feels a little extreme. The only thing. What about the Ten Commandments? What about the 630 commandments found throughout the Old Testament? What about all of the don't touch this, do this, these and thou's? What about all that? The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And by the way, if this feels extreme, if this feels like he's ignoring huge swaths of our religious thinking, you're in good company. Because I guarantee you the Jewish Christians felt exactly the same way, which is why they were having this conversation or argument or whatever you want to call it. This is a big deal and it's very confusing for people who have been brought up in a culture that says my standing with God is contingent upon my performance. I know that I was raised in a a family that was very loving, but even there, I still picked up this thought that my parents' approval, their, their pleasure in me is derived from my effort, from my performance. And it creates this sort of idea that love is contingent upon performance. And so we find ourselves running on these hamster wheels over and over, and we're only as good as our last performance. I feel that even inside my own heart. It doesn't matter that last week was a great week. I'm up here now and I'm only as good as how I'm doing now. How am I doing? Don't answer that. No, stop. Don't answer that because it doesn't matter. Because it's still getting to the heart of it is I'm basically insecure and I start looking to other people to tell me, am I okay? And the danger of this religious mindset, the danger of trying to work our way into acceptability, trying through effort and through legalism and rule following and all these kind of things, the danger is that it radically changes our relationship with God. It begins to corrupt it. It begins to breed within us an insecurity about our standing with him. And so we find ourselves asking questions like, God, how am I doing? We start 
we start basing how we feel about how we're doing off of the things we've done and the things that we haven't done. God, I, I, um, I made it to church five minutes earlier than I normally do. I was only 10 minutes late today. God, um, I, um, I, I prayed for that person. Remember when he asked me for money? I said, I don't have anything, even though I had some money in my pocket. I said, I don't have anything, but I want to pray for you. And then I remembered to pray for him as I was driving away. That was good. I know that I got mad at my kid today. I know I kind of snapped at him. And I know that I took that second look the other day because, I mean, come on. But, but God, how are we doing? And there's this, it begins to breed this insecurity that, am I okay? Am I okay? Am I okay? Are you going to strike me down? It turns our father God from a loving father into some, and I'm sorry, Rich, but I'm going to use the analogy again, into some divine traffic cop with his aviator glasses on so we can't see his eyes. And he's just waiting there, waiting for us to mess up so that he can strike us down. It turns our relationship with God into like, you know when you're driving down the street and you've got the cop car that's just pulling behind you? You're not doing anything wrong. And at that point, you're probably going five miles under the speed limit. But you're still like, you know, and you just know that they are running your plates and looking for any reason to pull you over. And those lights could go on in a moment. And so you're just like, oh, please. And you're like, I think I'm going to change lanes. Why? Because I don't want to mind me. Uh, maybe that's just me, right? It changes the way we feel about God. I was thinking about it this week, and maybe this is a good reminder for each of us. Anyone who is willing to die for you is for you. Let me repeat that one more time. Anyone who is willing to die for you is for you. So stop going through your life, looking up, going, God, are you going to strike me down? God, are you angry at me? God, are we okay? Are you, do you still notice me? And instead, allow yourself to love. Because what did Paul say? The only thing that counts is our faith working itself out in the way that we love people. Let's keep going. Verse 7. Paul, talking to these Galatian Christians whom he had planted the seeds of hope in their hearts. He says, guys, you are running a good race. You started out really well. Who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth? I'll tell you what, this kind of persuasion doesn't come from the one who calls you. This isn't from God. This is from somewhere else. He says, a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Back in the day, when I was a kid, I used to go over to my grandmother's house, and I got to make bread. This is back before they had automatic bread makers, okay? So we got to do it by hand, which for like a six- and eight-year-old is super fun. And I, she made, basically made the bread. I made a mess. But we would, I remember very vividly she'd pull out her biggest bowl, and she'd grab just buckets of, of flour, and she'd add salt and sugar and water and all these kind of things, and then she would pull out this little container so what's that? This is yeast. She would reach in and she'd take just a little pinch and she would spread it over the top of this massive bowl of flour. And then we got to get our hands in there, right? We start kneading it and it turns into this big loopy ball uh, of dough. And we would take that ball once it was all mixed together and we would stick it in front of the fireplace covered over by a towel and we would leave it alone and we'd go out and play. Like two or three hours later, we'd come back and that little ball of dough had magnified that. It was three or four times as big. It was massive, full of these beautiful air pockets that makes bread so light and, and fluffy. 
And I go, what happened? She's like, that's the yeast. It's multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, and it's permeated the whole thing. And then that's the, the gases that it excretes, which when you start thinking about it, it goes, ooh, that's what I'm eating? doesn't matter. That is what makes bread so wonderful. So you have to give it time to rise. And Paul's saying, listen, in the same way, in the same way that yeast works itself through a whole batch of dough and radically changes the whole thing, our legalism, our insecurity, just a little bit of insecurity in our standing with God begins to change everything. Not only will it change the way we view him, changing it from viewing him as a, as a loving father who is for us into that divine traffic cop, but it begins to change the way we view and treat other people as well. Rather than being able to look at somebody and love them and give them grace because we are operating out of a, out of a kind of foundation of we are loved and we have been given grace from a God even though we didn't deserve it. When we start feeling insecure, we take our eyes off of other people. We start putting it on ourselves and kind of looking up. And then when we look around, it's not with love, it's with comparison and judgment. Oh, well, you know, God, at least I'm not nearly as bad as that heathen over there, you know. God, I, I, you know, whatever it might be, we start comparing ourselves and it radically transforms the way we deal with and treat other people. Jesus said, the world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. But when we start feeling insecure in this vertical relationship, our horizontal relationships suffer as well. Make sense? Even if it does, just say yes. That's all I'm looking for. I just want the affirmation that I'm doing okay. Okay, moving on. So a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. Now I'm confident in the Lord that you will take no other view. The one who is throwing you into confusion, whoever that might be. Now Paul knows who's doing it. He's just kind of saying, whoever is throwing you into confusion and kind of planting these seeds, God's going to take care of them. They'll have to pay the penalty. Verse 11, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? Now apparently there were some... Some of the Jewish Christians who had gone up to Galatia were saying, hey, listen, Paul was only here for a brief time. So he only shared about grace, but he's a good Jew. He meant to finish the whole thing. So he obviously supports you guys getting circumcised and you guys, you know, submitting to the law. He certainly doesn't think that we're saved by grace alone. And so Paul's going, wait a minute. If I'm preaching grace alone, or I'm sorry, if I'm preaching circumcision why am I still being persecuted? But he takes it one step further. In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. What an interesting term, the offense of the cross. I mean, obviously, in our day and age, the cross is offensive to a lot of people. People don't want to hear it. People don't want to hear you share about your faith. It is more acceptable to support any other religion on this planet other than Christianity and a crucified Savior. I'm just going to talk about Paul's day and age and what would have made the cross offensive to those Jewish Christians who were pushing powerfully against it. The reason that the cross was offensive to them is twofold. On the one hand, it's a tangible reminder that we don't need to earn our righteousness it can be given to us through what Jesus did on the cross. But what makes it truly offensive 
is that the cross is a tangible reminder that even if we wanted to earn our righteousness, we couldn't. That Jesus had to die to make imperfect sinners righteous. Now we might go, oh yeah, that's what the cross is about. But for a Jew who had been raised thinking, I make myself righteous by obeying the law, by doing the right things. This is like a slap in the face. What are you talking about? That I I can't make myself righteous. I'm a good person. I have followed all the rules. I am righteous. And Paul's going, no, you're not. According to the law, you are a sinner. According to the law, no one, no one will be declared righteous by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become aware that we are sinful. So this was a slap in the face to those individuals who would have tried to suggest, yes, for some people, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. For me, I'm following the law. That's the way that I'm climbing into God's good graces. And Paul pushes hard. And and if if you want to know just how hard he pushes, look at the next verse. He says, brothers and sisters, if I'm still preaching circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In In that case, the offense of the cross would have been abolished. Now, as for those agitators, those people who are throwing you into confusion, the people are suggesting that we need to combine Jesus with the law, the people who are suggesting you need to get circumcised. Well, you know what I hope they would do? I hope they just go the whole way and emasculate themselves. In other words, I wish the knife would slip and they would just cut it all off. I've gotten mad at a lot of people. I have never wished that upon anybody. Paul is obviously pretty upset and you start going, why on earth are you reacting this way, Paul? What's up? Well, remember, Paul's a Pharisee. He is well acquainted with the law. He's well acquainted with the effects that the law can have on your heart, the way it causes you to look at God and the way it causes you to look at other people. And he knows that the law and legalism is like yeast that will change everything. And when you suggest that you can take Jesus, a whole lot of Jesus, and just a little bit of legalism, it's not going to stay that way long. He knows at the inception of the church that even if a little bit of legalism gets sprinkled in, it will permeate the entire thing. And that before too long, you'll have 99% legalism, 1% Jesus. 99% works, just 1% grace. And sadly, we see this playing out today as legalism has made its way into the church and we start comparing ourselves to other people based upon human rungs of our our, our effort. But Paul also knew something else. He knew that if we approach God with this mindset that it's somehow something I do by my own strength, I have to make myself righteous by obedience to the law, then what we devious human beings will do is try to lower the bar low enough that we can actually get over it, right? Right? We'll take, we, will, we will unwittingly look at verses that very clearly say one thing and say, oh, no, 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 it's not actually saying that. It's saying this over here. We're fine. We're good. You know, hey, you're fine. Ironically, Jesus did just the opposite, didn't he? You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I tell you, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've committed adultery in your heart. Uh-oh. You've heard it said, Don't murder, but I tell you, if you harbor bitterness and anger towards your brother, you are a murderer in your heart. 
okay. Whereas our human tendency is to try to lower the bar so that we can somehow climb over it and feel like we are acceptable to God. Jesus jacked that bar up so high that it became laughably obvious that we will never, ever be declared righteous through our own efforts, that we will never be able to stand upon our own efforts and our own good works and say, look what I've done. And that's a good thing because what it does is it levels the playing field. When we no longer can earn our righteousness, when we can embrace the fact that it is by grace we've been saved, not by our efforts, then the only thing we have to fall back on is grace. The only foundation we have is grace, which hopefully will change the way that we deal with other people. Hopefully it will affect the grace that we are willing to give to other people. Hopefully. Let's keep going. Just a couple more verses I want to look at this morning. Verse 13. Well, actually, before I dive in there, I just want to say one thing. One of the biggest concerns for any legalist, one of the biggest concerns for anybody who's coming out from under kind of a system where there have been very clear rules in place is, okay, wait a minute, Paul. You're saying that there are no rules. You're saying there's no law. You're saying that has no bearing on our life. Well, then how on earth do you hope to protect people from driving the the car of their lives or the chariot or whatever it might be? How do you protect people from basically throwing themselves over the cliff into moral degradation? How do you protect people from themselves? It's a great question. I mean, are people free to live any way that they want? Paul, is that what you're saying? Thankfully, he doesn't leave that unclear. He goes into it now in verse 13. He says, you... My brothers and my sisters were called to be free. But don't use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Don't use your freedom to live any way that you want. Okay, let's be realistic here. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping just one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, what Paul is saying here is, yes, we are free. We are free from the law. We are free from the penalty of our sin. We're free from having to cower anytime we come into God's presence. But that freedom is not a license to sin. That freedom is a license to love. Very different. Because we have not been freed to just go off and run and and fulfill our heart's desire as if we're the prodigal son running off into the wilderness with all the money that we have to live it up. No, you're free to come to God, to be with our Father in relationship with Him. You are free to be intimately connected with Him and to rest in His grace and His love. And... You are free to be a representative, to reflect that same grace and love that he has lavished upon you in all of your interactions with other people. That's what you're free to do. You are free to represent him. So don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Rather, use it as a foundation for love in other people. 
Could you imagine for a moment what it would look like if we actually got this? If we actually stopped looking at ourselves and our relationship with God based upon all of the rungs we've climbed or didn't climb, based upon how we measure up to all of the rules, on how, how often we get to church and how much money that we tithe and how much, um, you know, all of those kind of things, who we voted for or any of these other kind of things that we use to separate ourselves and judge ourselves and compare ourselves. And instead, we simply said, God, I love you and I'm in and I'm your son, I'm your daughter. Help yourself to my life and help me to reflect the same love that you've lavished on me. Help me to live out of this foundation of grace so that I can give grace to other people rather than feeling like I need to compare myself to them so I will feel closer to you. Could you see how that would affect the way that we do life? Could you see how it would affect perhaps the, the gospel as it is represented in our lives? Because there's a whole lot of people who would never think to step foot into this church or to any church. They want nothing to do with God because when they think about the church, they don't think about love. They don't think about grace. They think about judgmentalism and holier than thou. They think about attitudes and arrogance. And, and in some ways... That's fair. And in other ways, it's just simply dismissive because they don't want to actually allow God to have control of their lives. It's it's too much to go into right now. But what if we could get out of our own way? What if we could get out of the way of the very gospel that our lives represent? And here's here's one way I was thinking about how can we do this? Let Let me just throw out one idea and I want us to try it on for a week and let's see the fruit that it might produce. This week, in every interaction that you have, when, you, when you're thinking in your thought life about people, when you're tempted to do something, I want you to think this one thing. God loves me. And he has accepted me as his son or as his daughter. Now how can I reflect his love in this? What does love demand? Just try that on. Try it out. Live out of the mindset that my father loves me. He died for me. He is for me. So God, help yourself to my life. How would you like me to love the person in front of you? How would you like me to love my spouse with this whatever choice I have in front of me? How would you like me to love my sons when all I want to do is hold on to my anger And all I want to do is be right. And even though I blew up, I don't want to apologize, God. What does love demand now? How can I model grace? And let's just try it on. Because as Paul said, the only thing that counts is our faith in God working itself out in love. So let's pray. And we're going to spend a couple of minutes just responding to a God who is willing to die for us and who is utterly for us. So, Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for loving us. Jesus, I thank you for your willingness to give your life so that we could be reconciled to our Father God. And you not only gave us hope, you radically changed 
our relationship with, with our Father, our Creator. And we thank you for that. And now I pray, Father, that you would help us to reflect that same love and that same grace in every relationship and in every moment. May it not only affect our lives, but may it affect every life that intersects our lives. For your name's sake, for the advancement of your kingdom purposes. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name. Amen. Let's worship together.